Did you enjoy listening to episode 85 with India Hamilton about Scoop, the Circular Economy Food Cooperative? Well, here's the rest of our conversation as a bonus episode. Hello and welcome to the Circular Economy podcast, where we explore how circular, regenerative and fair solutions are better for people, planet and prosperity. I'm Catherine Wheatman of Rethink Global, and I'll be chatting with those people making the circular economy happen, rethinking how we design, make and use everything. We'll hear from entrepreneurs and business owners, social enterprises and leading thinkers. You'll find the show notes, links and transcripts at circulareconomypodcast.com, where you can subscribe to updates and our monthly edition of Circular Insights. Hello, welcome to this bonus episode with all the interesting bits I couldn't fit into episode 85. And thank you, as always, for listening. In episode 85, we heard from India Hamilton, the co-founder of Scoop, a circular economy food cooperative on the island of Jersey. Our conversation covered a wide range of topics, some practical and some philosophical. There was too much to fit into one episode, so here's the rest of our conversation as a bonus. In this second part, we talk about the context that led India to co-create Scoop and its founding principles. India tells us about Jersey's key crops, its history and the current challenges for farmers, and how she realised permaculture principles could unlock those challenges. We talk about membership models and loyalty, contrasting Scoop's model with things like Amazon Prime. We discuss the challenges of regulations for small businesses and why India loves compliance officers. We explore why it's important to support your local economy and how exploitative capitalism is undermining that. Have a listen and I'll be back afterwards for a quick reflection on what I took away from our conversation. We start with India explaining that Jersey focuses on four main foods for export, and yet farmers grow a much wider variety of crops. There's a commercially, there's the big four on Jersey, and that's oysters, dairy, potatoes, and now cannabis, um, which is an emerging market. These These are commercially driven, economically focused strategies by the government. And they've been through a process of diversification. But when we did our research, we found that there was a group of farmers who weren't part of that um, island strategy, who between them were growing 120 different crop varieties Mm. and working in a completely different way. They'd lost their subsidies in 2014 um, in terms of if you're organic associated. And... We just kind of thought of a, we just imagined, imagined something different around how many crops we could be eating. Um, and how, just, yeah, we, it, was, it was very easy to imagine the most stunning shop working with these particular farmers. The, the, they're just beautiful places to be. Um, and translating that into a space of, of collective community felt the right thing to do. Yeah, and just just to um to come back to to one uh, word that you used just again to help clarify things for the audience, um, mm-hmm. 
you mentioned traditional farming, which is a term I see used a few times, and I always want to correct it to industrial farming, because, you know, that tradition of industrialising farming and specialising and monocrops and things like that only really goes back to 1950s, um, you know, 70 years ago. So um, perhaps we should reclaim that traditional word for, for the kind of, um, you know, the the more the, the lower yeah. impact and more regenerative you are absolutely in, in tune. right there's no there's no question and one of the bits of um kind of connectivity that i did with the land when i got back was i went to a bit a building which is the third oldest building in the world and it was built by um 6000 years ago and it's called hoogby and it's a big mound with a crypt on top with a 20 foot tunnel and you go during the equinox and you climb through that tunnel and you sit, you will sort of crouch. And during sunrise, um, the light comes in and it comes through that tunnel and it lands on the hearth. And it is, I mean, it, it's a big clock to say, come on, now it's time to get planting. Um, but the innovations that have happened in Jersey historically before the industrial aids model um, are profound and as a result of a deep relationship with the land. Um, but also really progressively innovative. Um, there was this, there's this learning about uh, Colonel Lacoute in, in 1835, who wrote a book about seed selection and had a relationship with Darwin. And these are farming, these are farming stories that aren't part of our narrative. Aspel Cider started here, Rami Maltan started here. Um, the, the salt cod. Um, there's a whole area called Le Canavé, which is a school, which means cannabis in Jersey French, because they were the rope makers for the shipbuilding. Right. So the the trade and the the kind of innovation around agriculture, um, I don't think as a, as a people, we have we have claimed the narrative um, beyond the commercial concept. Mm. Um, the the role that the the Jersey cow has played internationally has been quite a phenomenal story um, as that tiny, high-yielding, gentle cow. Um, so yeah, it's a very it's a very complex history, very very long. Um, and when you start reclaiming that indigenous practice um, of working with the land and the light, um, the, the the whole potential opens up. Mm. Yeah, and I think there are lots of things happening in um, permaculture um, projects and so on around the world, trying to bring those kind of practices back to all sorts of communities where the commercial narrative has taken over and they've been encouraged to monocrop and so on, and then mm -hmm. and use fertilisers and pesticides. And now the soil's so degraded that they're unable to earn a living from it um, but permaculture and agroforestry and you know regenerative farming and some of those things are starting to bring back the polyculture approach um, and to um, you know find find ways to support local food and local businesses you know that that help keep the communities going so yeah India I'm, I'm really you know you, you mentioned Hyderabad 
um, and looking at the food systems out there. But, you know, what what led you to, to this in the first place? When, you know, when did this spark kind of uh, light up? Um, I've had, a, I've got a deep empathy for um, caring about how others eat, um, more so than myself a lot of the time. So it was very clear that that was the path I was going to take at, at, at some point. Um, but it, it's never felt commercial. It's always felt about, um, about telling, a, telling a story around food. Um, I went to, to Hyderabad and I'm actually just going to explain why I came back different, <laughs> essentially. Because it was a permaculture project out there um, with high biodiversity that was, was attempting to show economic opportunity within the city so other people can go viable it can be viable so this was a, a market-led concept and permaculture is absolutely strategic on the land about interrelations and about about complex strategies that how things come together and work with each other and whilst I was out there I was thinking to myself we were building this project where what we were doing is we were building a permaculture supply chain and we were we turned and looked at the people and looked at the city and the opportunities and the processes and the activities that happened in the same way in the kind of supply chain and the market opportunities in the same way as you would permaculture and what emerged from that was was the importance of essentially the circular economy and put the importance of circular systems. And it, so it's very much inspired by the kind of these two worlds, permaculture and circular economy are really, really married actually. Mm. And so much of our conversation is about telling the farmer how to change and telling the consumer how to change. But we've got no real conversation about how we really change the the shape of the function of that supply chain. So this was going back, and for me, this is 2017. Um, and I learned in India that you can actually really redesign that in circular ways, creating lots of different newly formed supply chain relationships and community relationships that work with one another. Um, and that really made me think that Almost, I will never tell a farmer what to do, and I'd never tell a consumer what to do. I'll just create conditions in the middle that both make it easy for them to function well, like maximum um, positive impact that is part of the circular economy and a part of the permaculture concept. So these things were sort of marrying, um, and we were making $12,000 a week off 20 acres when this was really starting to happen. Um, so I was sold by this. I was sold by the, the, this, this complex strategy at small scale being highly impactful. And I got back to London and I saw a billboard saying, the future is vegan. I was like, the future is complex. Um, I'm going to Jersey. <laughs> Cause I need to go and I'm gonna go home and I gotta go and understand what this means when the supply chain is what needs to be addressed. Not people, not farmers, the, the supply chain, the bits in the middle, the reinvention of the, the conditions of the market. Mm. 
Um, and that's very much London felt London felt it was on a hard journey into selling more products that sustainability would be sold by products and I just felt from this was very much in the chefing sector this this was happening lots of vegan based movements and I just thought I'd step back from that and go home and look at the land that I sort of grew up in and and test this idea really um and that's five years later (laughs) i'm still here india and i move on to talk about membership models in episode 85 india explains how scoops membership model works with a membership fee that rewards subscribers with a discount india talks about the research they did with consumers to get clearer on what people wanted from scoop Time pressures came up as one of the issues stopping people from going, say, to a farm shop instead of the supermarket. That sparks our discussion about some of the wider aspects of convenience and membership models, including Amazon's Prime service. And I guess, I guess, also to use um, <laughs> to use an example that I hate to use, um, but but thinking about Amazon's Prime model you know, where you pay your prime membership and then you get free deliveries. So I guess also people have then got the thought that they're paying this membership, so therefore they need to get ongoing value out of it. It it kind of keeps them connected with you um, and reminds them that, you know, they've got the membership, so if they buy from your shop instead of the supermarket, there's a 25% discount. Um so it's so it's it's kind of it's fulfilling several purposes, isn't it? Um, yeah, I think it's 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 part of creating that ongoing relationship. Um, I think the the Amazon model it is about accepting he you know that that strategy is accepting that deliveries don't make money. <laughs> And how to how to find and how to find regular supply, you know, regularly regular income streams in a very um, and man and control the market, and so be able mm. to control investment in and share value. Mm. So for, for them, I think it's it's an, it's a deep acceptance that the home delivery model is highly expensive yeah. and and problematic for many, many people. So capturing that and creating these solid revenue streams um, is, a, is a means to stabilize their business. And so I, I think it's actually deeper and more sophisticated than this need to remind you to come back. I think without it, they wouldn't have the hold they have um, because, of the, because, of the, because of the fragility of home delivery. And what we found is that farmers' shops that were linked to the land had their own deep fragility because of the supermarkets in the area. Mm. So that we believe that we, they needed protecting. So Amazon think that they need protecting and the, what need protecting is that hyper-convenience for the consumer needs protecting. I'm, I'm sure they believe that from a position of, of morality than anything else. But we believe that those farmers needed protecting. Mm. So we had to think very deeply about how to create the relationships. That actually when you ask, 
someone in the community how would you feel if the, those farm shops disappeared they wouldn't want that so this is about building this kind of these these support networks and structures that means that they will still be there mm. and they can flourish and grow within this system mm. so it's a, it's a bit deeper the 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 kind of taking a point a bit further really around why that membership is there yeah and i think it, you know it raises some really interesting questions doesn't it about um how you how you create the sense of community and as you said that people are paying the subscription so if they do end up shopping at a supermarket this week they still know they're supporting the cause that they believe in and they're still in some way um keeping the thing the thing going and they're still connected to you in episode 85 india described the circular and reusable packaging systems they've developed at scoop including glass bottles and jars, tiffin boxes, and so on. The glass containers are used to package up the products that Scoop has developed to make good use of seasonal produce, for example, kimchi soups and sauces. India explains how Scoop has created cost-effective ways of cleaning that packaging and making sure it meets high health and safety standards. But the sustainable container probably isn't really sustainable. You know, it's probably um, not, still made from, you know. I'm not going to unpick that. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, Fair enough. <laughs> um, but, but yeah. <laughs> we just, just looking at it at a price level, mm. um, glass is an issue on the island. We're now circulating glass. We're cleaning it. The environmental health is safe. And we've done it buying secondhand equipment. Um, so secondhand cleaning cleaning systems and kitchens. And, and so we every element is looking from a circular perspective um you can see when these products come and get to the end of their life (laughs) these kind of fridges and stuff but essentially we we try to show that as small as you are with as little money you can invest in a circular system off going to a secondhand dealers Mm. And nothing in there is anything more than what you'd buy for a kitchen anyway. It's just rethought. Yeah. And at the, I was really conscious that, that that it wasn't about buying anything new in a new product, the new system. It was, oh, this can happen here. And But you have to take compliance really seriously. Mm. And you've got to write the hass up. And you've got to look at the risk assess. Um, and that's that's really, really interesting. Mm. I love compliance officers. <laughs> and, and I mean that. Yeah. They, we want to like, we're always, by the time they leave, it's like been three hours and we're always wanting to talk more because it's so fascinating as you start to unearth this idea that compliance officers are part of progress and how they are, how they need to move forward with you and their needs and you know yeah and their needs which just reflect the needs of wider society to have access to um food that's not going to um, give them you know food poisoning or whatever yeah one of my favorite things to say just to kind of like really break down this idea that 
it can be done because lo- there's lots of this idea that there's composting issues and the dangers of circular food systems are real. And I'm like, somewhere, somehow, someone got an approval to blow up a nuclear bomb. We can definitely, definitely circulate this food. Like, we can do it. And that is just saying that in a meeting, you first look, they look a bit shocked, but then they go, huh, yeah, we can. <laughs> like, it's just kind of owning those decisions around being able to say compliance is about working things out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And having structured processes and routines that people follow and, um, and, and I guess people understanding what the critical aspects are, like, you know, this temperature to sterilise or, um, you know, whatever it is. Um, I w- went to a, um, a workshop on reducing food waste from a from a you know household point of view with the sustainable restaurant association and there was oh, a chef there offering some brilliant tips um on you know how to make sure you're not going to get botulism and things and kind of talking about the the use of heat that you know if you if you're thinking your hummus might be a couple of days older than it should be um you yeah. know turn it into a hot sauce um you know make sure it gets up to a um a steady simmer and so on and then then you've killed off any any bugs so those kind of tips that um you know can help help reduce yeah it's amazing yeah. that um you know we live in this kind of ultra sterile environment um without this without this belief that we are part of this kind of massive web of life and you know these mm. kind of these biological relationships that are key to our existence. Um, obviously, we're, we're very threatened by, um, we're told to be incredibly sterile. Um, I've always felt quite, it's a, I don't know, it's just really, it's a really complicated conversation to start to open the fact that what, what a fertile process can look like over a sterile process if yeah. they're the two if they're the if they're the kind of opposites of a system um yeah i think it's it, it's it's quite spectacular yeah that, that I, kind of dichotomy i agree and i find it fascinating um but i won't i won't get tempted to share um maybe afterwards i'll have a look for the um uh, the podcast I'm thinking about, which was all about regenerative agriculture, and then talking about the human biome, um, and some really fascinating stuff on that. Yeah, possibly Didi Purse House talks about this most eloquently. Say that name Didi, again. Oh, uh, uh, someone called Didi Purse House talks about it. That wasn't the person, I don't think, but I'm gonna gonna look that up afterwards. In the last part of our conversation, we talk about the cost of living crisis and how supermarkets have subsidised the cost of online deliveries, making it very difficult for smaller, independent local retailers and producers to compete with that. You know, is the cost of living in these supermarkets going up because also there's been a massive transition for the food supply chain to do more of the work? And that's in the kind of the geopolitics of this conversation, I think that's that part of it is being really left out. Mm. 
Um, so it is a it is a discussion of the time, and it you know reflection of you as a consumer. Not that that's a nice word or the right word, um, but just asking of your retailer is this model working for you and is there financially something I can do to help bring prices down? Mm. Why not? Yeah. But retailer, I guess you're thinking local retailer, not, not have that conversation with your supermarket. Well, why not? Like, yeah, probably just a local retailer. It's just, you know, is it more helpful for me to pick up? Mm. Um, I think that's, you know, asking to be supportive. Mm. But again, I kind of want to ask the people, the big retailers, is this really, is this mm. really working? Yeah. You just have to look at the share, the shares of Ricardo, just and unpick those um, and how they make money and stuff. It's really yeah. interesting. Yeah, I think it, I think it is interesting, and it's, it's, you know, we're seeing the same thing. Um, not to kind of uh, drift off the subject, but seeing the same thing with the um, food to go delivery models, Uber Eats and and Just Eat and all the others, you know, none of them are making a profit. Um, they're all just going for market domination through the deep pockets of their investors. Um, and, you know, then after that, it's to use that phrase, Tescopoly. You know, once you've got yeah. the monopoly, then you can charge charge what you like. I loved the starting point for India's route into this, learning from the projects she worked on in Hyderabad, designing a permaculture supply chain, and then the serendipitous meeting with the artist community. In the main episode, we discussed what we might call the convenience paradox. You might remember India's research and thinking about the true meaning of convenience. We've been led to believe it's all about speed, rather than the true definition to do something with ease. When we take time to think about what we really need, what we really want to do, for many people there are several layers of motivations, going deeper than the basics of price, functionality and so on. For food, at a basic level, we might be thinking about macronutrients, protein, carbohydrates, fat and energy in the form of calories. We probably want to choose food that tastes good. And then there are other layers of needs, the deeper value we want to get from our food. Many of us want to buy local, seasonal, fresh and nutritious food that's been grown without pesticides and fossil fertilisers, and that provides a fair wage to farmers and everyone else in the supply chain. We want food that's full of micronutrients too, vitamins and minerals, antioxidants and so on, food that will help build up the good bacteria in our gut biome and protect us against disease and ill health. In the episode, I mentioned a fascinating podcast I'd heard that explained the relationship between soil and our gut biome. I couldn't remember the name of the scientist, so I checked afterwards and it's Dr Christine Jones on the excellent Fibre Shed podcast. I've included a link in the show notes. So that's it for this bonus episode of the Circular Economy podcast. Thank you to our guest, India Hamilton, co-founder of Scoop. And thank you, as always, for listening. As usual, you can check out all the links we mentioned in the show notes at circulareconomypodcast.com.
I believe we can all help make the circular economy happen through the choices we make at work and in our everyday lives. Buying pre-used, keeping what we have for longer, repairing it and making sure it has another life. Those choices send strong signals to companies and governments, making it clear we all want a better, circular and regenerative future. We can all help spread the word too. Talk about the circular economy and help other people find this podcast by leaving us a rating and a review on your podcast app. Email a screenshot of your review to podcast at rethinkglobal.info and we'll give you a shout out on the show. We've made it easier for you to find episodes on the key circular economy strategies or for a market sector or specific countries. Check out our interactive podcast index. There's a link on the podcast homepage at circulareconomypodcast.com and every episode includes an interview transcript. If you'd like to learn more about the circular economy, why not go back and listen to episode one and two or buy a copy of my award-winning book, A Circular Economy Handbook, How to Build a More Resilient, Competitive and Sustainable Business. It takes you through the concepts and practicalities with hundreds of real examples from all around the world. The Circular Economy podcast is brought to you by Rethink Global, helping you succeed with circular. You can find information on our talks, workshops, coaching and advice and circular economy resources at rethinkglobal.info or connect with me, Catherine Wheatman, on LinkedIn. LinkedIn.